Uh, I think many of us have many portions of Scripture, many Bibles. Uh, I don't know how many you have in your house. I've got 40 Bibles maybe at my house. Uh, amongst all the kids, amongst all my different translations. Um, and to realize what it is that we have in our hands. We have the precious Word of God. And I think too often we can just you know, leave it on the shelf and go about our daily business and not realize all the treasure of what we have in God's Word. But may we be like the Kimyal tribe in Indonesia who received the Bible for the first time in their own language. Did you see those guys reading it for the first time? What a, what a treasure it was. And I think too often, we've read it so often that we get bored of it. We know what the Bible is. We miss that it is the very Word of God. But do you realize some of the value of this Word? It says Psalm 118, verse 89, that forever, O Lord, Your Word is in heaven. As Darren read for us in Psalm 19, Your Word is more desirable than gold. More desirable than honey and the drippings of the honeycomb is the Word of God that we have. It will preserve. It will, it will help us and keep us. As Psalm 19 also says, that the, the Word of God is able to make wise the simple. It is able to convert the soul. But the testimony of the Lord that we have is sure. And too often I think we can, can neglect it. Well, the Bible is something that we can trust. And that's what I hope to show you a bit this morning and just the, the greatness of the Word of God that we have. If you haven't done so already, I invite you to open your Bibles to 2 Timothy. Again, we're just working right through 2 Timothy, um, verse by verse each week. And we've come this week to chapter 3, verses 16 and 17. Some of the, the greatest verses in all the Scripture that speak of the Scripture themselves. I want to read it for you. 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17. All Scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. That's our text. It's short. We can read it again. All Scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. Here we have one of the most clearest explanations in all the Scripture of the authority of God's Word, the power of God's Word, and the sufficiency of God's Word. It is inspired of God. That is, it is entirely authoritative in our lives. It is profitable for teaching, reproof, correction, and training. And that it means that it is powerful to change lives. It is able to equip the man of God for every good work. That means it's sufficient for our walk with God. I remember hearing uh, about a decade ago a, a lecture that Kent Hughes, pastor of College Church, gave. His title of his lecture was entitled, Fundamental Beliefs You Must Hold To in Order to Preach the Bible Expositionally. Right? Fundamental beliefs you must hold to if you are going to preach the Bible expositionally, which I do. Expositionally means you just go through it, book by book, chapter by chapter, just opening it up and exposing. And here are the three fundamental beliefs that he says you need to hold to. First, you need to believe the Bible is wholly inerrant. Second, you need to believe that the Bible is massively potent. And third, you need to believe that the Bible is totally sufficient. Because if you don't believe the Bible is wholly inerrant, that it, that it has some errors in it, then, then you won't stand on it and just trust the Spirit of God as you just work through it and expose its meaning. If you don't believe that the Bible is massively potent, you'll try to change lives or get some power from someplace else. And if you don't believe the Bible is totally sufficient, then you have a Bible and something else that you can add to it. But I believe that the Bible is... Totally inerrant. I believe the Bible is massively potent. And I believe the Bible is totally sufficient. So my beliefs, it's why my ministry is all about just opening the Bible, 
reading the text, explaining the text, applying the text. Reading the text, explaining the text, applying the text. Because I believe that's what God has given us and that's all we have and that is profitable and helpful for us. That's why we've gone through books of the Bible at various rates of speed just to open for you what God's Word says. There's nothing magical in what I do. I'm just taking it and showing you what it is. Showing you so that is what it is. So you can see it there. You know, we might be able to grow a bigger church if we would adapt other methods in ministry. Maybe having a humorous preacher might draw the crowds. Or maybe having a, a preacher to the felt needs so people always leave feeling better. Or maybe preaching that never confronts sin. We might see a lot more people come to Rock Valley Bible Church. We might be able to build a, a bigger church that way. But, hear me, you, we will not build a better church that way. The way to build a better church is by taking the Word of God and letting it loose to do its work. Spurgeon often uh, is quoted talking about the Word of God is like a lion. You don't have to defend it. You just open the cage and let the lion roar and let it go forth. And that's what I try to do each week. And we just trust that God will do His work in your lives and in my lives. We just take the Bible, next verse, see what it says and apply it to our hearts. Well, when we come to chapter 3, verses 16 to 17, we see these three things that Kent Hughes talked about, about the inspiration of the Scriptures. We see the, the power of the Scriptures and we see its sufficiency. It says right there in chapter 3, verse 16, that all Scripture is inspired by God. That is, that God breathed it. It is inerrant. We see there that it's profitable for teaching, reproof, correction, training, and righteousness. That is, it's powerful to teach us and change us. The Bible is able to equip men for all in righteousness, for all righteousness. That speaks of its sufficiency. But God didn't put these verses right here just to teach us a, a doctrine about the, the, the doctrine of the Word of God. Know that they've come in context, and that's that's what's helpful as you just work through a book of the Bible. You kind of catch the flow of, of thought. And really the question is, okay, so what's the flow of thought? Why are verses sixteen and seventeen here? Well, Let's review this, and I, I think it will become clear. Beginning here in verse 10. Actually, you can go back to chapter 3, verse 1. There were difficult times. The church, Timothy was facing deceivers and false teachers entering the church. Realize this, chapter 3, verse 1. That in the last days, difficult times will come. They'll seek to deceive people in the church. They'll be driven by their own passions. But Timothy's posted in the church. He's to protect the church. He's supposed to advance the church against the kingdom of darkness. And beginning in verse 10, really we see Paul's strategy given to Timothy to combat the evil of society and the evil that even comes into the church. Remember they were, verse 5, holding to a form of godliness, although they denied its power. These were professing religious leaders, people in the church doing these things. And Paul tells Timothy to follow me. He says, stay the course. You're going the right way. Keep walking the way that you're walking because you first followed my teaching, conduct, purpose, faith, patience, love, perseverance, persecutions, and sufferings. Timothy, you know all about my teaching. You, you saw my conduct. You know my purpose in life. You saw my faith in action. You saw my patience when tested. You saw my love in all things. You've seen how I've persevered through all these things, even through persecutions and sufferings. And that's the lot that I walked. And Timothy, you followed right along with that. Verse 10 says that. So follow my ways. Follow your ways. Yes, you will suffer. Yes, you will face persecution. That's the fate of all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus. Verse 12. Paul said, hey, follow me because that's the path you followed. But then beginning in verse 14, Paul says, it's not just me, but continue in the things that you've learned to become convinced of. Right? Continue in the, in the things that you know. And whoever's taught you, whether it's your, your mother or your grandmother who were his first teachers, or, or the rabbis at the synagogue, or even what I have taught you, you've become convinced of these truths, so you just continue right on and you keep going that way. You don't need some new method. You don't need something else new and fancy. No, you just continue along the same road that you become convinced of. And what's that road? The road is... How from childhood you've known the sacred writings. 
which are able to give you the wisdom that leads to salvation through faith, which is in Christ Jesus. Right? Follow the Scriptures. Follow the, the sacred writings that you know, Timothy, that you knew from a, a young boy that were taught to you. The, the, the same things you learned when you were small in kindergarten. Keep pressing on. You know, There's a book, Everything I Need to Know I Learned in Kindergarten. That's what he's saying. Everything that you've learned, everything that you know, even from your youth, just about the Scriptures and how they're able to give you the wisdom that leads to salvation in Christ. You just, you just follow along that path of wisdom, Timothy, and you keep going. And then we come to verses 16 and 17. I think that is the context. I think the whole purpose of these verses is to show Timothy, encourage him in the usefulness of the Scriptures for Timothy's life as a pastor. St. Timothy, the sacred writings are a faithful guide for you. They have led you to Jesus and they will lead you home. So trust in them. Trust in the Bible. That's why Paul wrote verses 16 and 17. All Scripture, it's inspired by God. And all Scripture is profitable for teaching, reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. And the Scripture works in such a way the man of God would be adequate, equipped for every good work. It's the Scripture that you, Timothy, for your pastoral call. So trust them. That is the title of my message this morning is Trust the Bible. Trust the Bible. Now, I need to make a, a word of disclaimer at this point because technically, when he says all Scripture, he, Paul wasn't referring actually to everything that we have here. And I say that because there were portions of Scripture that weren't even written yet. Um... And, and there were maybe some portions of Scripture Timothy hadn't even heard of yet. But certainly, all Scripture meant everything in the Old Testament, from Genesis to Malachi. Certainly it meant the whole Torah. Certainly it meant all the writings. Certainly it meant all the prophets. All those is what it certainly meant. And then as the Scripture continued to be unfold there in the New Testament days, certainly it referred to those things as well because Jesus Paul refers to that in 1 Timothy chapter 5 when he speaks about quoting Jesus verse 18 the scripture says you shall not muzzle the ox when he is threshing and the laborers worth his wages that comes from Luke chapter 10 verse 7 quoting Jesus as scripture so referring to Luke for sure as scripture and Luke had written Matthew and Mark had probably written and Acts was probably written even then as well and, and Paul knew Tim, Timothy knew Paul, and Paul had written much of the New Testament. Uh, the Apostle Peter even called Paul's writing Scripture in Second Timothy, Second Peter rather, chapter three. He speaks about regard the patience of our Lord our salvation, just as also our beloved Paul, according to the wisdom given him, wrote to you, speaking also in all his letters, speaking in them of these things, in which are some things hard to understand, which the untaught and unstable distort, as they do also the rest of the Scriptures. So, Paul wrote some things which are difficult, but they are Scriptures. There are some people who are deceiving as they do all the rest of their Scriptures. And so, even in Paul's, Peter's day, he was looking at Paul's writing of Scripture, but everything wasn't done yet. And so, when he talks about all Scripture, he's speaking about everything they had to that point. But everything that they had certainly applies to all across the board what we have today in our canon. And so, I just tell you this morning to trust your Bible. Trust the Scriptures Everything that God has given to us. My message this morning is entitled, Trust the Bible. And I just looked in my, my library this week and I have several books um, entitled this, Can I Trust the Bible? R.C. Sproul. Little, whatever, 80-page pamphlet or something like that. Erwin Lutzer. Seven Reasons Why You Can Trust the Bible. He's got a bunch of different reasons there. John MacArthur, You Can Trust the Bible like a, a sermon that he put into print form here. And, and each of these guys take a little bit different approach. R.C. Sproul uh, looks at the Chicago Statement on Biblical Inerrancy, which was written in 1980. And he just expounds that, talks to us about how we can uh, trust the Bible. Erwin Lutzer kind of gave more, more proofs of the Bible, of how you can trust the Bible by giving a, you know, a, a logical reasons why you can trust the Bible, historical reason why you can trust the Bible, Prophetic reason, the fulfillment of Scripture, Christological reason, how it all filled in Christ, the authority of Jesus, scientific reason, providential reason, personal reason. That's how it changes lives. And, and he, 
I think seven chapters. He probably preached seven sermons on this theory. You can trust the Bible. Uh, John MacArthur here, his typical style, he just opened up Psalm 19 is all he did that Darren read for us today about the sufficiency of the Scripture. You can trust it. Well, my approach today, I don't have seven sermons on this one particular topic. I'm just going to take what Paul has said to Timothy. I realize that is sufficient for us. How Paul tells Timothy that you can trust the Bible. So let's dig in. What does Paul tell Timothy about the Bible, about the Scriptures? And really, he's got three things that he says. If you've listened carefully, you know my outline already, but I will help you through that. Why can you trust the Bible? Three reasons. First of all, the Bible has authority. The Bible has authority. I get this from the first half of verse 16. All Scripture is inspired by God. That is... All Scripture is the very breadth of God. The Greek word here for inspired is the word theopneustos. Theo means God, like theology. Penustos means spirit, like pneuma, or to blow. It literally means theopneustos. God blowed, or God breathed. If you have an NIV in your lap, that's exactly how the NIV translates this term. All Scripture is God breathed. Excellent translation. The SV captures the same exact sense. All Scripture is breathed out by God. The Scriptures that we have are the very breath of God, the very words of God. Peter said it this way, is that men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. Yes, the Scriptures are a product of men. Men wrote them. But the Scriptures ultimately are a product of God as He moved them to write. Prophets wrote. They spoke from God. Therefore, all Scripture has authority in our life because God is the one who spoke. Children, when your parents speak, you need to obey them because they have authority in their voice. It's not that their voice is so authoritative. It's their person, their being. Who they are stands that comes with authority. And so likewise, when God, the King and Creator of the universe, speaks, His words are to be obeyed. He is to be listened to. That's really what the Bible is about. And when you read, particularly the Old Testament, over and over and over again, the Bible says this, Thus says the Lord. Boom. Thus says the Lord. And the prophets speak. Thus says the Lord. I mean, over 400 times Scripture says this. Hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of times. I think it's 400. It might be 700. I, I, I can't remember. I don't have my, my number in my notes. But it's many hundreds of times. Then the Bible says, thus says the Lord. That, that means that God is speaking. So there's a prophet saying, hey, King Hezekiah, let me give you a message. Thus says the Lord. And then he says this message that's coming from God Himself. That's a message to be obeyed. It's a message to be listened to because it comes with authority. Now, let me point out here just a, a subtle difference between the word inspiring and inspired. Because there's a difference between inspiring and inspired. I grew up in a church that didn't pay a lot of attention to the Bible. Oh, it was used, it was read, it was quoted... But in the end, it really wasn't seen as authoritative. Uh, I think, in some sense, we at the church, we saw the Bible as inspiring rather than inspired. The difference is this. Inspiring literature helps you to, to live better. It motivates you. It gives you a goal. It gives you a drive. It gives you some comfort. It gives you some assurance. A little bit last week, remember, I had that little book that said Bible Prayers and Promises. I, I think the church I grew up in saw the Bible like that. It's, it's just to be used in times of difficulty to encourage you on to keep going. Or, or you want something to live for in life. It just kind of inspires you to live for something in life. And, and to be fair to the church I grew up in, I don't think that they would say it that way. I think they were orthodox in everything that their doctrine said. And we pushed it probably tonight. But that's the way it felt as a young child growing up. Went to church in junior high and high school. It's what it felt like. 
It felt like they were reading the Bible so as to be inspired, so as to live better. Now, there's a difference between inspiring and then inspired. Inspired means that God has spoken. And quite frankly, it doesn't, doesn't make a difference how it makes us feel. Whether it makes us feel good or bad, we must pay attention to it. Regardless of what we think is right, we don't take God's Word and then filter it through our own thoughts. The fighter verse this week, Proverbs 3, 5 and 6. So we'll pass on to our kids' club this week. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge Him and He will make your path straight. Since the Bible's inspired, we trust the Lord. We don't lean on our own understanding. Because God has spoken, we have to pay attention to it. Even if we don't understand what God says, we don't have to understand what God says. We don't have to get it all figured out. We just need to trust what God says. That's what we do because they're the very words of God. Now, it's not that if you believe in an inspired Bible, it's not inspiring. Okay? In fact, here's, here's the interesting thing. I think that if you believe in an inspired Bible, there's no better way to have an inspiring source in your life. Because when you believe that, that God has spoken this, and you want to serve and love and please the Lord with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, it will inspire you to press on and obey and follow the Lord in every single way that you can. It will be inspiring. It will press you on. It will drive you. It will motivate you. In fact, I think that's the best way to live a, a life that's filled with hope and joy and passion for the Lord is to believe that it's inspired and you will be inspired by it. But there's a difference if you only view it as inspiring. It's not going to make it. View it as inspired and then you'll get plenty of inspiration out of that as well. And I just tell you, the testimony of my life is that God used a church filled with people who believed the Bible was inspired to change my life. I grew up in this church, uh, went off to college, kind of continued to go to the same church in this denomination. And um, then when I was a senior in college, <clears throat> I was 21 years old, and um, I stepped in the foot of a church. I believe the Bible is inspired, not merely inspiring. And here's some characteristics of that church. They brought their Bibles to church. The church I grew up in, nobody really brought their Bibles. I, I did. I don't know why. I just felt like I, I should. Maybe I had something to read during the sermon. I didn't understand what was being talked about. But I went to a church the first time. Everyone brought their Bibles. That was radical for me to attend a church like that. Another radical thing is that the people of the church talked about their Bibles. The, the words of Scripture were on their lips and they spoke with each other trying to encourage one another with the Lord's work in their life. And on, on top of that, even these people at this church knew the Bible because they placed a priority on it of learning and obeying God's Word. They just read a little bit of it every day. Some people read a lot of it every day. I, I knew one man who tithed his time in Bible study. He was a successful businessman. Tied this time in Bible study. Two and a half hours every day of his life. And certainly there were some exceptions. Why would you do that? Except you believe that the Bible is inerrant and authoritative and powerful and sufficient. That's the only way you do that. So, so I'm around this church suddenly where they are like that and it really changed my life because I'd never met anybody who knew the Bible better than I did. Well, maybe the pastor did, but he never really talked about the Bible very much. The, certainly, the people in the church never really talked about the Bible. I'm not, I'm not lifting myself up. I'm just saying that I did some reading of the Bible. I knew it a little bit. But all of a sudden, at this church I went to, people knew the Scriptures, and all of a sudden, I was like, low man. I didn't know anything compared to these people. And so, they're not arrogant. They just loved God and loved His Word. And so, put it forth and talked about it. And I said, you know what? I want to be like that. I want to be like that. And so I started attending, started to learn God's Word, starting to see the treasures of the Gospel, the, the glories of Christ in a way I'd never seen before because finally it was working itself out. And I know that if you talk to my wife, her testimony is exactly the same. She grew up in a church where it's kind of uncool to be biblical. She stepped foot at Grace Community Church out in California and all of a sudden people took God's Word seriously. 
and loved God's Word and saw it change their lives. And she repented of her sin and embraced Christ. I'm just telling you, the difference that a church will make in people's life when you view the Bible as inspired and not merely inspiring. My question for you is this. Suppose someone steps into a church off the street from a weaker church. A place where they believe the Bible is inspiring. Will they come out of Rock Valley Bible Church with that same sense? That there are some people who believe the Bible is inspired because they have their Bibles and they talk about their Bibles and they love their Bibles and they know their Bibles. It really flows from the authority of, of God's Word. It flows from the inspiration of Scripture. It's my challenge for you is to, not in a showy way, but in a genuine way, make it so true in your life that you can't help but to bring it forth when you mix and mingle with people. Alright, let's move on to my second point. Not only does the Bible have authority because it's inspired, secondly, it has power because it can change our life. Power is my second word here in the second half of verse 16. By power, I mean the ability to, to guide us in how we should live. I get this from the last half of verse 16. All Scripture is inspired by God and, same subject, all Scripture, same verb, is, not only is it inspired, secondly, it's profitable for teaching, reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. Profitable means it's able, it's powerful for these things, four areas. Teaching, reproving, correcting, and training. Let's just spend a little bit moment on each of those. Teaching. This provides the raw content of what it is we are to believe. I love the fifth question of the Westminster Catechism, which says, What do the Scriptures principally teach? Answer. The Scriptures principally teach what man is to believe concerning God and what duty God requires of man. That's what the Bible does. It teaches us of God and it tells us how it is that we ought to respond to Him in faith and obedience. And the Bible is profitable for teaching. The Bible is the only thing that's profitable for teaching. It's profitable for teaching. Secondly, it's profitable for reproof. This shows us when we're going the wrong way. The Bible is filled with prohibitions. Right? Just take the Ten Commandments. You shall not have any gods before Me. You shall not lie. You shall not murder. You shall not steal. You shall not covet. I mean, those things identify sin. You, you shouldn't act in this way. And it reproves us when we do. It identifies our sin. And the Bible is really good about that. When you read a Bible, Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12 says, The Word of God is living and active. It's sharper than any two-edged sword. And it pierces as far as the division of soul and spirit to both joints and marrow. And it's able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. All things are open and laid bare. The eyes of Him with whom we have to do. The Bible will cut us, it will dissect us, and it will penetrate deep to our heart like no other words on the planet will. It will reprove us. The flip side of that is that it will correct us. It will show us the right way. The, the Bible's filled with counsel of how it is that we are to live. We're, we're to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ with all of our heart. We're to love the Lord our God with all of our heart. We are to love our neighbors as ourselves. Husbands, we are to love our wives and wives. We are to submit to our husbands and children. We are to obey your parents. And these are, these are admonitions telling us how to live where the reproof shows us where we're wrong and the correction seeks to show us where we are right. And even sometimes in the correction there's reproof there as well, right? Husbands, you're said to love your wives and you know you're not doing that so well. And so it reproves you and corrects you and points you in the right way all at the same time. Finally, fourth thing here, is it trains us in righteousness. This describes the whole process of growing in godliness. The word here is um, kind of the word we use for discipline, for training our children. And you train your children, what do you do? You commend them for things well done. You discipline them for things they do wrong. When you've done that consistently, it will yield the peaceful fruit of righteousness. That's what Hebrews 12 speaks about. It's painful for the moment, but when you get through it, it's going to yield this fruit of righteousness. And that is exactly what this it says. It's, it's profitable for training in righteousness. 
That's what the Word of God does. It teaches us the right way. It, it shows us, it, it reproves us when we're wrong, and it corrects us and shows us the way to go right, and it trains us to do so consistently. It's not just a one-time, okay, got that one done. What happens in our sinful nature is that we constantly have things that we need to learn and need to grow and need to constantly be trained with. The athlete who stops running for a few weeks then can't go back and run like he used to run. And so likewise, the one who's apart from the reproof and correction of Scripture can't come back as quickly. But the one who's constantly reproved and corrected by Scripture will be trained in the ways of righteousness. It's the power of the Word of God. It has power to influence our life. It has power to help us live lives pleasing to God. The great example of this is the Lord Jesus Christ. Right before His public ministry, but just after His baptism. You know, He fasted for 40 days and 40 nights in the wilderness and Satan came up and tempted Him. Words like this, If you are the Son of Man, I know you're hungry, Jesus. There's a stone there. Command this stone. It might become bread. And Jesus refused because, listen we said, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Basically saying, no, I'm not, because this is what the Bible says. Again, Satan came, said, okay, if you are the Son of God, throw yourself down from here, this pinnacle, this peak, for it is written, he will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. And Satan's twisting Scripture. And then Jesus takes Scripture and says, no, no, no. It is written, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. I'm not going to jump, Satan. I'm not to put the Lord my God to the test. Third time, Satan approached Jesus, saying, all the kings of the world and all their glory I'll give to you if you just fall down and worship me. And he says, sorry, Satan, it is written. You shall worship the Lord your God and serve Him only. Now, don't take that model of Jesus lightly. When tempted, Jesus overcame temptation. How? Through the power of the written Word. Three times He says, It is written. It is written. It is written. And the written Word helped Jesus... God in the flesh, the sovereign Lord of the universe, to walk rightly in His humanness. And if Jesus used the Scripture to walk rightly in His humanness, I think we ought to use the Scripture as a source of power and strength in our own lives to help us in our temptation. I think it was the power of the Word of God that taught Jesus. It's the power of the Word of God that reproved the devil's wrong thinking. It's the power of the Word of God that corrected the devil in the right way he should have gone and that... that Push Jesus in that right way and train Jesus to walk in the path of righteousness. The, the Scriptures were, were known so well by Jesus and applied so well by Jesus. That's their power. Uh, I love the example of Moses. Right towards the end of his life, Deuteronomy 32, after all his years of sermons, after he taught him this song, the very last thing he says to the people of Israel, he says, "...take to your heart all the words which I am warning you today." which you shall command to your sons to obey carefully, even all the words of this law, for it is not an idle word for you. Indeed, it is your life. Moses' last statement about all he'd written, he gave them the law. He says, it's not an idle word that I've given you. In fact, it is your very life. I say, church family, is the Bible your very life? Could those words be said of you? Do you find your sustenance here? Do you find it sweeter than honeycomb? Do you find it more precious than silver, more costly than gold? Is it your everything? I mean, that's the implication. If the Bible is able to teach us and correct us and reprove us and train us, it's valuable and it is, it is helpful and powerful and useful. It ought to be our life. Alright, my third point, why you can trust the Bible. Not only does the Bible have authority because it's inspired, not only does the Bible have power because it's able to teach and reprove and correct and train, but also it has sufficiency. That's verse 17. By this I mean that the Scriptures are all comprehensive. They tell us what we are to believe and how we are to live and giving us the needed tools necessary to live that way where ultimately we don't need anything else because we have the sufficient Scriptures. And having the sufficient Scriptures, that is 
all we need. That's what verse 17 says. The whole purpose for the Scripture being inspired by God and the whole purpose for the Scripture being profitable for these things is so that, and here's application, so that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. In other words, the Scripture is what makes, what helps, what equips, what trains this man of God to be adequate, equipped for all of his work. Now, the man of God here is a a term used in the Old Testament some 70 times. 72 or 73 or something like that. Every time it's used. Every time it's used. Every time man of God is used. It's used to describe God's man or, or God's prophet or the one who proclaimed God's Word. Moses was called the man of God. Samuel is called the man of God. That is, God's representative here on earth to speak for him. He's the man speaking for God. Elijah was called the man of God. Elisha was called the man of God. Along with a handful of other lesser known prophets were called the man of God. The man of God phrase used only twice in the New Testament. It's here and it's also used in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 11 where Paul is given a similar admonition that he did at the end of chapter 2 of 2 Timothy, but flee from these things, you man of God, and pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, perseverance, and gentleness. He says, you are a man of God. You, you speak for God. You are God's messenger. You are God's proclaimer. You are God's prophet. You are God's minister. You are God's pastor, if you will. Here's what I think verse 17 means. God has given Scripture which is authoritative and powerful so as to equip men for pastoral ministry. And it alone is sufficient to teach men in pastoral ministry. That the man of God, the messenger of God, may be adequate. He may be equipped for every good work. Everything that a pastor needs to do, he can be equipped by by reading the Bible. Think about how many problems there were in Ephesus. A few weeks ago, we looked at chapter 3, 1 through 9, and saw 19 different characteristics of these evil deceivers in the church. And they were all coming at, at, at the church and different people in all different ways. But with all the many problems, there was one solution to all those problems. It's found in the Scriptures. Turn to the Scriptures, Timothy. This will give you the wisdom that you need. Timothy, you want to be equipped for your pastoral duties? Take up the book. Timothy, you want to know how to deal with deceivers of this age? Timothy, take up the book. Timothy, do you want to know how to protect the church? Take up the book. Timothy, do you want to know how to counsel the flock? Take up the book. Timothy, do you want to know how to be kind to all and able to teach? Take up the book. Timothy, you want to know how to endure persecution, what should you do again? Take up the book. Timothy, you want to live as a model before others? What should you do, Timothy? Take up the book. Timothy, you want to live godly in Christ Jesus? What should you do, Timothy? Take up the book. Exactly. You want to know how to discern truth from error? What do you do? Take up the book. Right, Eva? You want to pass on the faith to faithful men? You want to know how to do that? What should you do? You want to know how to pray? What should you do? You want to know how to endure hardship? What should you do? You want to know how to do the work of an evangelist? What should you do? You want to know how to fulfill your ministry? What should you do? You want to know how to fight the fight, Timothy? What should you do? You should take up the book. I'm just telling you, the Bible is sufficient to train those who are leading God's church. And this has, by the way, far-reaching applications on how to equip men to serve in the church in pastoral or other leadership roles. Fundamentally, all training of all pastors, all leaders, should be Bible-based, Bible-centered, Bible-saturated. I don't know if this is a hobby horse or... It's not, not really. I don't talk about this a lot. But it has implication about seminaries. Seminaries are good and helpful where men can have um, 
time they dedicate really to know the Bible. I appreciate it. I'm thankful, Lord, for my time in seminary. But sadly, let me tell you, seminaries can become mere academic institutions rather than pastoral training centers. And what happens is when you have professors in classes, you need to talk about something, you start, start talking about things and focus can oftentimes be taken away from the scriptures to pursue other academic interests or maybe even some other practical pursuits. And as they do that, seminaries then can drift from the Word of God. And as they drift from the Word of God, they're drifting from their inspired pastoral training manual. And as they drift from that, then they begin to focus upon tensions of, or issues of, say, sociology or, or ministry methodology or, or pragmatics in the pastoral life. Which I say, if you want to study sociology, take up the book. It talks all about what man is like. It talks all about like people in community, what they are like. If you want to pick up a ministry methodology, pick it up from the Apostle Paul. It is all pick it up from Jesus. It's all over the Bible. Practical pursuits, anything you need to know is here in the Bible. And what happens you start pursuing these other things, the Bible then people pastors are, are learning these other things, what's kind of more important in the professor's eyes, and it kind of takes them sucks them away from the Bible and then what happens when they're ministering among their congregation? So it's not been modeled that the, that the Bible is what's really helpful. What, what models is, is this the latest book or this latest method or this latest gizmo or this way to do things. And then you start drifting over here and you, you lose sight of the church. And, and how the seminaries go, the pastors go, and the people go. As a result, churches aren't taught. Churches aren't reproved. Churches aren't corrected. Churches aren't trained in righteousness. Instead, they're too directed on running the practicals of running a finely run church. And the church, by the way, loses its power. Loses its power. I just tell you, the scenario is played out time and time and time and time and time again in church history. Most schools in our country started as pastoral training centers. Harvard, Princeton, Yale. They're not there today because they've, they've drifted into other things which are, which are okay. I mean, we need people to be trained as engineers and, and doctors and lawyers. I mean, that's, that's, that's good, but they started pastoral training centers. And then you have you know, more, more academics and you start adding other things and now basically they've drifted from all bearings that they used to have. Um, it's fine to go to school there. Don't, think, go, to sem- don't go to seminary in those places. Um, Played out all the time in church history. You show me a mainline denomination that's been around for many years that's drifted in its belief and trust and focus upon the Word of God, and I will show you a denomination of churches that have lost their power, that's weak and dwindling in numbers. Interesting, Ryan Brown showed me a picture of a, a mainline church with their, their goals upon a wall. And I'm going to get it a little bit wrong. You got it on your phone, Ryan. We were talking about this. But the, the goals basically were something like this. We want to add what, 15 to 20 families this year at our church. We want to grow this many kids in our church. We want to do all this, you know, kind of get our church growing up and going. And you said maybe on another wall, this church building was something like, come join us for the Bible and, what was it, like spiritual meditation, how you combine Eastern Orthodoxy and the Bible into the same thing. That's not going to work. It's just not. You can't just take the Bible. See, think about it. If you're going to mix Eastern Orthodoxy and the Bible to try to like come up with this spiritual life, you've just lost the sufficiency of the Bible. You've lost your power. We want to have a powerful, effective church. Let's trust on the, the power of God's Word. Because everything needed to train up spiritual leaders in the church is found in the Bible. Therefore, seminaries should be about the Bible. I'm thankful I've gone to a seminary where the original languages were were focused upon. You had to take two years of Hebrew. And you had to take two years of Greek. Had lots of exegesis classes. Taking, taking Hebrew, exegesis of Hebrews, or exegesis of First Peter, exegesis of Ephesians, or exegesis of pastoral epistles, or exegesis of Old Testament books. I mean, everything just kind of came out of the book, which I am thankful for. <clears throat> so I am thankful for Leadership Resources International doing a work in Nepal and many other countries around the world is because what they're doing when they go to foreign lands is they're not bringing some book that you come and train these pastors in. They're just bringing their Bibles. 
and teaching pastors over a period of four years in each of these places. Poor places don't have any pastoral resources, training resources at all. Just how to read and understand the Bible. That's all their ministry is about. And, and they come in just with their Bible and just start reading it and applying it and challenging men. Okay, how do you read it? How do you apply it? Let's kind of work at this. And, you know, I've been about that and it's been wonderful. It's been great. In fact, I even had one man from Leadership Resource talk about all we're talk, all we do when we go to foreign lands is we're just basically teaching them reading comprehension. How to read, how to understand, and then how to apply in a correct way. So I'm committed to my ministry, do everything in my power to keep this book in front of you. A training effort, whether it's a man, whether it's a meeting, whether it's with youth, whether it's our kids club, just put the Bible center, front and center. Alright, that's what I think it means. But this also doesn't just apply to pastors. If it's true for pastors and equipping for righteousness, it is every bit as true for everybody else in the pews. What's true for Timothy the pastor is equally true for all of us. So, do you need help what to believe? What should you do? Take out the book. Do you need help what to do in your life? What should you do? If you need help in upcoming decisions in your life, what should you do? If you need help with a rebellious child, what should you do? If you need help in your marriage, what should you do? If you need help at your work, what should you do? If you need help in a difficult family situation, what should you do? If you need help with your discouragement, depression in life, what should you do? You should take out the book. It, it works for people as much as it works for pastors because, by the way, pastors are people. Um, I'll just tell you this story. It was my blog entry two days ago or so. I went to a football game with Dylan and Garth and my dad. And um, went to this football game. It was a great game. Chandler Harnish ran for 200 yards, passed for 200 yards, one of ten collegiate people ever to do that. The Huskies blew him out. Had a great time. Your time's out of cheering. So, on a ride home and Dylan says, Mr. Brandon, you didn't act like a pastor today. <laughs> so I'm thinking, you know what? I mean, I'm not in the habit of using foul language. I know I didn't do that. I'm trying to figure out what, what the way I acted with people. The way, so I, I said, Dylan, what do you mean by that? He says, Mr. Randy, you were just a normal guy today. Normally, you're the one up in charge. You're in front of the church. You run the church. You're the one in charge. But today, you're just one of the crowd. You're just a normal guy. Right? And that's, that's who I am. I'm a normal guy. And, the, and where verse 17 might specifically apply, first to pastors, it applies to everybody. That we all to grow in godliness and righteousness need God's Word. And God's Word is sufficient. So I exhort you, church family, to go to the Word of God for all of your questions and concerns and thoughts and what it is you need to believe and what is God like? Well, go to the Bible. You don't have to pull your theology book off the shelf. Now, that might help. Okay, other books might help, but they're helpful only as to the extent that they open up what the Bible says to us. As soon as they're spouting off their own opinion, it's not helpful. What's helpful is when you just bring forth what the Bible says because that helps us be equipped for every good work. Also had a, a testimony, uh, Karen Alooney, I hope you don't mind me saying this. We had a conversation in flocks on Friday afterwards, and she told me she's been to many, many different churches, many, many different places in the 20 years since she'd been a Christian, Karen. And he said something about, I've never been so equipped in my Christian life than I have since coming to here at Rock Valley Bible Church. And she just said, the message of Hebrews is so good. Jesus is better, so let's press on. And Second Timothy seems to be the same thing. Let's just press on in our, our life. And, and just kind of with questions, always coming back to the Word. And, and um, here, here's what my, I'm thinking through Second Timothy 3, 16 and 17, which is my week's meditation this week. And I'm thinking, and I told you this, Karen, and I said, that's a great illustration of Second Timothy 3, 16 and 17 because your comments didn't, Say to me, wow, Steve, your preaching is great. I just love your preaching. I am fully aware of my deficiencies of preaching. My wife encourages me to listen to my tapes 
but I think I'd be more discouraged than I already am. And so it would not, not be so well. I need to do some of that. But this I know. All I try to do is to be one of you. Be an ordinary guy. Dylan, you nailed it exactly. I'm glad. I'm an ordinary guy. But someone who just reads the Bible, opens it up, and explains it to you week in, week out. Hopefully it drills into your head how to do that. Drills into the head of kids how to do that. That you might do that for yourself because I want you to be equipped to be able to run with the Word of God all by yourself. And there's nothing magical I do. Not quite like an English teacher, but in some ways I am. I'm just helping you understand how English works and how verbs work and how nouns work and how you read a sentence, how you summarize it, how you apply it, how you illustrate it, how you just come back at the truth. A bunch of different ways to come and get at and get the core. This Okay, we got it this week. Okay, next week. And how does it fit with what came before? And How's it going to fit with what goes after? What's the main big idea of the book of Second Timothy? Well, you come up with this. It's fan the flame. It's fight the fight. Okay, I got that. Yeah, we've come through. I see it. Now, now maybe I can do that on my own with the book of James. Or maybe now I can do that on my own with the book of Habakkuk. Or maybe I can do that and I'm just trying to equip you so that you can do it because we all can do it and we all can grow in Christ in that way. And so as I heard Karen's testimony, I heard that I'm finally at a church that just opens the Bible and explains it. That's what I heard. Because I see the Bible having work in her life. Exposing, opening up, teaching and training. Go ahead, Karen. What do you want to say? Amen. 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 You are... Yeah. It's just it's just the power the physicality of the Bible is, is all it is. It's not anything beyond that. And I'm convinced that the scripture is a key to equipping all of you for every good work. Just to run with those things. I'm convinced there's no better way to build a strong church for the glory of Christ than to keep his word front and center. And one of the things that we need to do in keeping the Word of God front and center is that we need to keep what's front and center in the Word of God front and center in our, our lives. And we're going to do that as we celebrate the Lord's Supper here in a, another five, ten minutes or so. Because the front and center of the Bible is all about Jesus. And if you miss that, you miss your way. The, the, the center, the focus of all the Scriptures centers upon the person and work of Christ. The Old Testament anticipates Him, speaks about Him. The New Testament explains Him and expounds Him. The cross is the, the zenith of all history when Jesus died on the cross for our sins. For the sins of those who believe. He purged our sins from us. And I want to show you how just even as we talked about the Scriptures, is so central to, to life because it's authoritative and it's powerful and it is profitable, useful, and self-sufficient and sufficient in and of itself. I want to show you how Paul then even said, yes, it's the Bible, but it's the, the main thing of the Bible is the cross. So turn in, in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. I want to show you how Paul looked at the Scriptures and particularly looked at the cross to make that the key point of his ministry. Because there's a way that you can use the Scriptures and not speak of the cross of Christ and make the cross of Christ empty and void. That's what he says. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 17. He said, Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the Gospel. Not in cleverness of speech, so that the cross of Christ would be made void. Here's what Paul's doing. And Paul, Paul knows that he's been sent by Christ, Jesus Himself, to go. And he said, yes, he did baptize, but he was not sent with the purpose of baptism. In other words, baptism was a lower priority for him than preaching. And he says, when I went to preach, I didn't preach in cleverness of words. So he wanted to preach in plain words, in clear words, not just in clever words. Because, catch this, if he preached in clever words... The cross of Christ would be void, empty of its power. That's what he says in verse 17. Christ didn't send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel. He didn't send me to preach in cleverness of speech. Otherwise, you could read it, the cross of Christ would be voided. You want to avoid the power of a church? Just to ignore the cross. 
Or you might get a lot of numbers. You might get a lot of energy. You've got, you got to get a lot of things going, but it's got no power. It's when the cross is there. That's where you have the power. Paul was all into church growth and a powerful church, but he says the right way to do that is to preach Christ. And he says the problem with that is that many people reject it. Look at verse 18. For the word of the cross is foolishness towards those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it's the power of God. So you put the cross out there and you divide the room in two. Those who embrace the cross, it's power. Those who reject the cross, what are they talking about at Rock Valley Bible Church? It doesn't make sense. I'm not going to go there. It, It just divides the church. It keeps out the chaff when you preach the cross strongly. He says in verse 22 then, Jews are asking for signs and Greeks are searching for wisdom. The Jews want the phenomenal. The Greeks want the intellect. But Paul says, no, we preach Christ crucified. And it stumbles, it's a stumbling block to the Jews. And to the Gentiles it seems foolishness. But to this third category, the called, the elect, the chosen of God, from both Jews and Greeks, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. You're going to build a strong church. You build it on the foundation of Jesus Christ died as a substitute for our sins. Him in our place. That's what Jesus is talking about. We took the bread. He said, this is my body broken for you. My body for you in your place as a substitute. And that's the message that we look at. And that's the message that we rejoice in. And then in verse 26 and following, he just says, just think about your calling. God didn't call the wise and the strong and the, the attractive. No, he said... Consider your calling. Not many wise according to the flesh. Not many mighty. Not many noble. But God, by His sovereign decree to glorify the Gospel, has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. He's chosen the weak things of the world to shame that which is strong. And the base things of the world to despise the things which are chosen. The base things of the world to despise God has chosen the things that are not, so He may nullify the things that are, so that no man may boast before God. The way the cross works is that we come to God empty-handed with nothing in our hands. We come to Him void. We come to Him weak. So we talked about in our small group on Friday. We come to God weak and needy. And that's exactly... He says, you're not bringing your riches to Me. I don't need your riches. You're coming to Me poor. I don't need your righteousness. Don't come to Me righteous. Come to Me unrighteous. I need your righteous unrighteousness. It's not those who are healthy who need a physician. It's the sinners who need to come to repentance. That's what he's saying. You're not great in your own eyes. And God did that so we might not boast before God of ourselves. We might boast of Him. And God did it this way by intention and design. He says, by His doing, you're in Christ Jesus. This was God's sovereign plan. We might boast in Him. And it continues on. The same thing. Chapter 2, verse 1. When I came to you, brethren, I did not come with superior speech or wisdom, proclaiming to you the testimony of God. So, I'm not coming in wisdom. I'm not coming in superior speech. For I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and crucified. Christ crucified was the only thing I wanted to bring among you. That's not, that's not the only sentence he said, but Jesus Christ in front and center became so much the focus. He wanted just to bring that. He said, I was with you in weakness and fear and trembling. My message and my preaching were not in persuasive words of wisdom but in demonstration of spirit and power. It's not that I was a great orator. It's not that I got all my words right. But it was the Spirit of God working through me that went to you. And there's a purpose of that. So that your faith would not rest in the wisdom of man, but on the power of God. So you might have a faith that's resting on God's power that's not on our power. And, and basically, that's what I want to do in my ministry. Just get behind the Bible, put out before you, say, there it is, unapologetically, say, there it is, at the center and the the, the point of it is Jesus Christ Him crucified. And that's what we believe in. That's what we trust in. Jesus died 2,000 years ago. A perfect man. God Himself into the flesh. A perfect man. Lived perfectly the life that we couldn't live in of ourselves. Yet the world and the sin in our sin hated the Christ that came to save. Put Him to death. And He bore on the cross the wrath of God that we deserved. And, and He bore that so that we might go free. God might be just in punishing the sin. He might be the justifier letting us go free because He punished Jesus in our place. And now we live again because we live by faith in Jesus. And that's how we celebrate the Lord's Supper. It's a time again to remember the cross. 
Remember the bread and the cup. When Jesus was at the Seder meal, He just took these two elements. So this, this pictures my, my death perfectly. I mean, here's the bread that we often eat. It's like, this is my body, which is broken for you. It's broken. We eat of it. In the cup, He says, is the new covenant in my blood. When you drink it, drink it remembered to me. Remember the blood of Christ, which dripped from the cross, which was symbolic of His death, which paid for our sins. So we're going to celebrate that here in just a, a few moments. You're visiting with us. You're more than welcome to celebrate the suffer with us. If you're a Christian, celebrate it with us. If you're not a Christian, this isn't for you. This is for those who believe and trust in Jesus, who are trusting right now that He has forgiven their sins by faith. And it's just a remembrance. We might remember Jesus the way He told us to remember Him. So let's bow our heads. As Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 11, to examine our hearts... We might repent of any known sin on our heart. We might come to the table confessing all our sins before the Lord, knowing the promises that He who is faithful and just to forgive us from all unrighteousness and will cleanse us. And so, Father, I do pray that we would find great joy in this message of the cross which many stumble at, which many find foolish, but we... Find it the power of God. That's what compels us to come back each week. That's what compels us to live a life of good works because You've given Your good work for us. So encourage us in this hour. Lord, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.